Today, I'm talking with Paul Griffiths, who is a longtime contributor to Commonweal. Paul recently retired from Duke University, where he was the Warren Chair of Catholic Theology. Paul has written for us about many subjects over the years, including atheism, the poetry of Paul Salon, Cambodian tuk-tuks, and something he fondly calls the liturgical drowse. In the August issue of the magazine, Paul has a review essay titled The Idolatry of Home, in which he writes about Roger Scruton's book, Where We Are, The State of Britain Now. Scruton's book was written as a defense of Brexit, a decision by a slim majority of British voters to leave the European Union. First, thank you for being with us today. I thought we'd start by talking about Brexit itself. Now, you recently were back in England. Uh, you're originally from England. And I wanted to know what the mood is there now when it comes to Brexit. Did you talk with anyone there who voted for Brexit? Yes, I talked with lots of people there um, when I was there last month. I think the mood is generally fairly gloomy about it on all sides. That is to say, those who did vote for Brexit, many of them anyway, think that there won't really be a Brexit, that whatever arrangement is arrived at when the negotiations are done won't really be what it's supposed to be. So they're gloomy. And then on the other side, those who didn't want a Brexit at all are deeply gloomy that there's going to be anything remotely like it. So it seems to me that by 2019, nobody will be satisfied. Right. And, and what do you think the chances are that it will actually, there will be a Brexit after all, and that this won't be uh, preempted by another referendum or by some last ditch effort to save Britain's membership? I think it's really hard to predict the chances of a last minute referendum if I had to predict, I would think it will not happen. I would think that something will be negotiated by the spring of 2019. So I think something will go ahead. Whether it will look much like what a hard Brexit might have been is another question, but something I think will happen. When Brexit happened in June of 2016, a lot of people were alarmed, but people became more alarmed in retrospect when they started talking about it as a harbinger of, of later outbreaks of populism, and especially uh, the election of Donald Trump in this country later in the year. How much similarity do you think Brexit has with those other recent episodes? I think there are some overlaps, but also many, many differences. Um, I mean, the, the obvious overlap, and I think it is real, is that both in Britain or England anyway, there is significant disaffection about questions uh, surrounding immigration. That's also true here in the US, though with slightly different flavor. So I think that's similar. And part of the reaction to that is to try to reestablish a more or less imagined past in which those things weren't a problem. So I think there are overlaps there. But I think many, many other things are different. I think that the, the sense that Americans have, or many of them, that America is what it really is, the greatest power in the world, and that it can do what it likes, that is completely absent in England, so and has been for a long time for obvious reasons. And so there's a sense that whatever happens, Brexit or not, the thing England has to do is to develop and maintain a status as a, a minor power with significant history. And that's really different from what goes on here. So overlap and difference. So let's, I guess, turn to Scruton's book. Now, Scruton defends Brexit, defends the people who voted for it. And uh, he does this by drawing a distinction between oikophobia, which is literally hatred of home, but can also be understood just as a kind of homelessness or feeling at home in more than one place. 
and then oikophilia, which is the love of home. And he connects this to another dichotomy between people he calls anywheres and people he calls somewheres. Maybe for the purposes of this conversation, we can just use the shorthand of somewheres and anywheres. I'm wondering how useful you find this way of approaching the question. You write in your article that it seems like a pretty good description of different temperaments, but is it also a good description of the political phenomenon? Yeah, I think it has some force even there, even as a description of the political phenomenon in the sense that disproportionately Brexiteers, those who supported Brexit, do have, at least rhetorically and I think also existentially, personally, a sense that where they live, whether it's England, Wales, Scotland or Ireland, is important and they want it important to them and they want it to remain as they imagine it to have been. So I think it does overlap with that political movement, a kind of populism, if you like. And I think the other side of it does too. I think there, there actually is a, a stratum of society, both in Europe and in the United States, that is effectively what Scruton likes to call anywheres. People who are very movable, they in fact do move a lot, they speak many languages, they have several passports often, they are self-consciously and by desire and design not rooted. I think that's a real difference. It's a sociologically measurable difference as well. So you write about Scruton's identification of home with the nation. You write for Scruton, the locus for law and politics should also be the home place. And European Union membership makes that difficult or impossible for the English. But this connection can be weakened. One could find one's appetites for home things satisfied by the local air and food and languages and habits, the things one hears and sees and touches every day. But one doesn't need one's appetites for politics and law to be met as locally as, as, locally as that. I thought that was an, an interesting point. But I wonder, uh, even if it's possible to, to have a robust affection for one's home place, for the things of one's home, and also a kind of transnationalist politics, is it possible to have a transnationalist democratic politics and also be oikophilic? What I mean is, doesn't democracy depend on people being able to communicate with each other? So at least it requires a shared language, because language is, after all, the medium of persuasion and democracy, in theory, any, any healthy democracy depends on persuasion. Yeah, that's a good question. And I think there's a great deal of truth in what you suggest. My own tentative view about all that is that democracy does indeed require communication. It requires a shared set of understandings and much more in order for it to work. It never works very well, but in order for it to work at all, it requires those things. And so when you get to the transnationals, say the European or even the world stage, democracy is not going to work well. I don't myself think that's too much of a problem. Um, I don't think that we ought to think that it's sensible to decide democratically about matters like, I don't know, which side of the road we drive on or which currencies we use or regulations that govern, for example, emissions of carbon into the atmosphere. I think that if we do try to decide democratically about those things, it goes extraordinarily badly and we simply should give that up. I think that democracy is very good or can be very good for much more local questions and that's where it's valuable. I'm myself entirely happy with the thought of there being transnational or even global rules and regulations that are not, in fact, determined by democratically elected representatives. I think that's simply a necessity in the world we have now. 
the most striking instance of that for me is that um, democracies are extraordinarily bad at dealing with the kinds of structural problems that have led to climate change. And that will continue to be the case. We will simply fail to deal with it if we try to deal with it democratically. And yet we need not to fail, or at least not as dramatically as we probably will. So it's a question of levels, I think. So you think a transnational politics or a transnational polity is necessarily technocratic and not democratic? I think in the end that's right, yes. And that's not necessarily a problem uh, as long as the right questions are, are being decided by the technocracy. Right. And that, of course, is the trick, because the problem about technocracies is that they tend to be expansionist and they tend to want to answer more questions than they ought to. So there needs to be a way to check that. But if that could be done, then yes, if the technocracy is actually answering the right questions, the questions it's good at answering, I'd be all for it. But I admit that's not going to be easy to do. But then none of it's easy to do. And democracy isn't easy to do either. So that's no objection, perhaps. One problem then is perhaps the idolatry of home, as the title of your article puts it. Uh, but another is the idolatry of democracy, because in your estimation, democracy is not the proper tool to deal with every kind of political question. Right, exactly. And I think it's difficult to say that in most Western nation states, because democracy, the idea of democracy, or at least the word democracy, holds such a powerfully positive place. And any critique of it sounds like either, I don't know, either fascism or state socialism or something else equally unpleasant. But I don't think that if most people think a bit harder about it, they necessarily actually do think that. Most of us are happy, I think, happy enough with various aspects of our lives being regulated in ways that are not remotely democratic. So if we can all get a bit clearer about that, then we could perhaps arrive at a more just and productive sense of what democracy is good for. I mean, isn't one problem here that the European Union presents itself to the public as a democratic institution, only to defend itself against its critics, including the Brexiteers? It does, and I would that it didn't. I mean, the membership of the European Parliament is democratically elected in a strange kind of way, but the turnouts are typically so small that the idea that they actually have any mandate is ludicrous. And I agree that it's problematic that it's defended in that way, but that's that's what we have to live with at the moment anyway. Well, at the end of your uh, review essay, you write that Scruton's oikophilic leavers aren't home lovers, but rather home idolaters. And perhaps English Catholics are in a better position to see that than most. Why do you think so? What is it about being a Catholic that would allow an Englishman or anybody else in Great Britain to see the problem with Brexit? I think two things. Um, one is that I think it's intrinsic and proper to being Catholic that one's loyalties can never, one's loyalties here below that is, prior to the eschaton and all that, but one's loyalties can never be exhaustively accounted for by loyalty to a nation state. That's to say, Catholics are members of Christ's body and therefore members of a transnational church. The Catholic Church is the largest transnational entity there is, by most measures, and so there's always a sense of limited loyalty. And nation states typically don't want limited loyalty. They want all of it. And so Catholics, I think, are in a good position to see what kinds of loyalty are and aren't appropriate to the nation states they live in. So that's one reason. But there's another 
that's peculiar to England, which is that there was a reformation in England and it was violent and bloody on every side, martyrs on every side and unpleasantness on every side. But once that shook out and settled down by the 17th century, uh, English Catholics found themselves a minority with almost no legal rights. And that persisted until the 19th century. And so there's a particular history there that gives, I think, English Catholics a sense that whatever else they are, they can't unproblematically and directly be exhaustively loyal to the United Kingdom because of that history. Is there some kind of tension in Catholicism between the universalism, the, the, the small-c Catholic nature of Catholicism, which means that it's international, and the importance that it gives theologically to the incarnational, the embodied, which means necessarily the local, or as you put it, the things one hears and sees and touches every day. Is this just a tension, or does this create conflict in the way Catholics tend to think about the relationship between their religion and their local place? Mm. Yeah. I think tension is a reasonable way to characterize it rather than conflict. I think that you know as well as I that there's a, a Catholic doctrinal position about this, which uses the um, the super slippery word subsidiarity. And that's in some ways meant to account for this. That's to say locality, the incarnational, where your flesh is, where you eat, drink, and have your mode of being in the world is deeply important because of the nature of the kinds of creature we are and because of the incarnation of the triune Lord as Jesus Christ. So that's all extremely important, but it's not the only thing to say. That is to say, as well as the incarnation and indeed inseparable from it, there is a transcendental, universal, eternal triune Lord who is incarnate as that. And so we all as individuals participate in something greater than the incarnational specificity of our local place. And so that's how it ought to go. But I think it's also right to say that sometimes it does become a conflict and people set up one thing or another as the only thing to say and then it's a knockdown, drag out battle and someone's got to lose. But it doesn't need to be that way. I think you can have both as long as they're articulated well with one another. Thank you very much for uh, being with us today. Thank you, Matthew. It's been my pleasure.